We're looking at God's Word this morning in the 20th chapter of Matthew, first gospel of the New Testament that we've been studying for some time. I'm going to begin reading at verse 17. If you have a really exceptional memory, the sermon title today, uh, you might say, I think I heard that before. I actually used the same title when I preached on the Luke's parallel passage to this. As you know, the three gospels have many parallels in some portions that are actually identical. And I used this title when uh, 11 years ago. Uh, so if you remember sermon titles 11 years, you're doing really well. But uh, it is not the same sermon. I really substantially changed. There may be some parts you've heard, but most you've not. Listen as we would read here, and I read for you, beginning at Matthew twenty seventeen. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And on the third day he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. May God bless this, his holy word, as we hear, interpret, and apply it. Back in 1997, in February, I think it was, I had the privilege that I still remember well of attending the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. as a guest of our congressman. I was in what had to be one of the largest hotel ballrooms I've ever seen. I was told there were 4,000 people in there. And as I sat down and began to look around and waited as people were coming in and watching people come in, I saw many senators and congressmen who I recognized from the evening news. I saw cabinet members and one or two Supreme Court justices, the 
current chairman of the Military Joint Chiefs of Staff, went by with so many medals on his chest, I didn't wonder that his uniform sagged down. I saw Pat Robertson and columnist Cal Thomas, Chuck Colson, Reverend Robert Schuler, And then, of course, in came the president and the first lady and the vice president and his wife. And one thing dawned on me very memorably. I thought at that moment that if international terrorists plan to direct a nuclear warhead at any spot on the planet that they would most want to hit, I was sitting there. And that thought stayed with me. Later on as we were leaving, I heard a woman say something that also stuck with me. She said to the person with her, rather excitedly, as if, you know, she was extolling, I guess, the privilege she felt of being there, and she said, this is one of the major power breakfasts held in Washington. I thought that was a really ironic statement, because at the head table, of course, there was the single most politically powerful individual probably on the earth. And all around me I could see people who were powerful in terms of controlling the spending of billions of dollars and the making of court decisions that determined laws of the land for decades and even generations to come. And yet I wondered, as I thought about her statement, are those people the real power here? Do you have power because you arrive in a limousine surrounded by Secret Service agents and you have a prestigious title and a lot of responsibility and a big budget? It seemed to me that the true power present at any presidential prayer breakfast is either the power of the triune God or else the whole thing is a pitiful sham. And proof of that thesis comes as, as I think back on those who were the most notable leaders and so-called power brokers when I was there in 1997. The majority of them have ended their terms of office. And their walnut-paneled offices with the brass plates on the door and the, the guards and the aides that run around serving them are occupied by somebody else. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ still reigns in heaven and in the hearts of all who cherish and bow before his name, for his office will never end. And his power is above all. I'm always asking the question, what it means to be a Christian leader. A good friend of this congregation who worshiped with us for a decade and now has moved back to Illinois. Dr. Hudson Armerding wrote an excellent book on the subject called The Heart of Godly Leadership. Dr. Armerding said this in one paragraph, quote, the structures of the family, the community of faith, human government, and economic institutions all were designed by God to have the same character of requiring that there be leading and following, ruling and being ruled, directing and being directed. Learning to lead is a gift from God. It's a calling to pursue with much prayer 
and much humility. And I want to emphasize that more of you are leaders than you realize. If you're here today saying, oh, he's talking to maybe the new officers that are coming into the church in a couple weeks if they're elected, or he's talking to those who hold political office or something, it's not me. No, I'm talking to every husband who should be a leader of his wife. I'm talking to every mother and father who had better be leaders in their family or they're courting disaster. I'm talking to everyone who teaches anybody else, everybody who manages even one other employee, everybody who has influence over someone else. And that's just about all of you. There are many more leaders in this room than the titles or the assumptions of power might make you think. As a pastor, I'm always thinking about issues of leadership in the church, not just my own leadership, but that of many others in the congregation and people in the presbytery and fellow pastors and other ministries that I know about. I'm always kind of watching leaders and seeing what they're doing and thinking about their mistakes and their successes. Elders and pastors who lead the church need much wisdom and faith and grace to lead the church of Christ in these times when every single individual almost acts as if they were a force unto themselves and they need no leadership. It's a lot like the time of the judges when the fateful sentence was pronounced, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Well, our text today does not comprehensively define Christian leadership, but several very crucial principles about it are here. And I see Jesus expressing a first point for us to hear in verses 25 and 26 when we learn at least what godly leadership is not. Jesus said, Christian leaders must be servants, not lords. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over their people. Their high officials wield power, and you could picture the people he was talking about in a, in a brutal manner, perhaps, or a, <coughs> a manner that did not show regard for the people. He said, do not be like that. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must become your servant. Well, you know, all leadership does involve a use of power in some way or other. Power isn't actually a bad word if it's understood correctly. We think power means military might, ability to force somebody to do something. But really, power means the ability to influence, to influence other people's behavior or thinking. And that's not a bad thing at all if it's done correctly. But power is very subject to abuse. I think of a good biblical example of leadership power gone wrong in a whole family, the Herodian family. There are actually three different Herods primarily that we know about in the New Testament related to one another. Herod the Great was the king when Jesus was born. He was the one who ran in and massacred the infants at Bethlehem because so tenuous did he see his hold upon power that his goal was simply to eliminate anybody who could be a rival, and that included a wife and a, a couple sons as well as, uh, you know, 
a handful of infants under two years of age in Bethlehem was nothing to him. Nothing. That was just a morning's thoughtless order that he soon forgot about. Herod Antipas is the one who executed John the Baptist, and he's the one who came before Je- or Jesus came before him, that is, for a, a mock trial. Remember, he had long desired to see Jesus because he had known John, and he was kind of fascinated. And then Acts 12 tells about another Herod. It gets pretty confusing. Herod Agrippa I is in Acts And he was a man who became so inflated with his own importance that he literally declared he was a god and expected worship. It's no coincidence that Acts tells shortly after he made that declaration, he died rather suddenly and horribly. You see, all three of these Herods were disasters in terms of effective leadership. The worst models you could possibly think of for the use of power. One was jealous of his power, and his way of ruling was destroy all rivals. Another was fatally indecisive. And another one was hopelessly vain. And each of those represents great leadership mistakes. I believe leadership crumbles when the person or the character or the behavior of the leader himself becomes the preoccupying issue of everyone. When all the time of discussion in a society or a church or a family or whatever, it has to be over the unworthiness or the misbehavior of the leader. People do not exist to simply give strokes to their leaders. And when the leader's own time and energy has to be given to simply shoring up his authority or insisting upon it and battling dissidents who besiege him, he's not leading very well. And any leader who lets himself, let alone sets himself up to be an idol for people's adulation, is mocking God. That's what was wrong with Herod Agrippa I. Mockery of God, and he died rather immediately after that. Do you realize that if we go back to the Garden of Eden, it was a desire to be like God that Satan tempted Adam and Eve with. He said, if, if you do this thing, you know, the reason God doesn't want you to do it is you'll be like him. And they thought, boy, that's not a good idea. Who wouldn't want to be like God? Let's do it. And then in Genesis also, at the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11 reports another leadership problem when they said, let us make a name for ourselves and build this great tower. Whenever leaders begin to have those kinds of thoughts, they go down the road Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 20. They start lording it over the people. and They believe that their leadership gives them the prerogative to somehow be exalted because they wear a title. Well, that sort of lording over is not, sad to say, confined to the secular realm or the political realm. It can happen in Christ's church. I spent the whole morning yesterday with new elders, working with them, teaching them about our book of church order and about the exciting subject. It is exciting to me. It may not be to you. Presbyterian church government. What it is about this system of government that has in it these checks and balances so that the elders, the ruling and the teaching elders must 
cooperate together, and one of them cannot run away without the other. And how we do not have or invite ecclesiastical powers of individuals like bishops from the outside to come in and high-handedly rule over the people of God, but we who are within the congregation strive to listen carefully to the congregation, to pray for the congregation, to consult together as those of a godly mind and hopefully with God's wisdom guiding us, and make balanced decisions. And yet, as good as we might think our system is, it's not the system that's going to ensure that we will always have godly leadership. You can still have runaway personalities and egos in a Presbyterian system. Leadership that's going to endure over the long term is that which seeks to build up God's people. And to do that, the leader is one who I believe has to regularly pray the prayer of that song, not I but Christ, be honored and loved and exalted. Because if it's the leader's goal to be honored and loved and exalted, leadership is in the process of dying there. Scripture paradoxically teaches us that the way to the heights of greatness for any leader in the family, wherever, is to enter the depths of service. And it gives Jesus as the great example. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others to be better than yourself. I remember that text striking me as a, a young adult and saying, how do I ever think that other people are better than me? My selfish nature doesn't think that. I think I'm better than them. That's asking what is not according to my nature. And we say, well, it's impossible. Well, I will agree it's unnatural. It is unnatural to our native-born inclinations, but it is not impossible if it is the remaking of us by the Holy Spirit of God making us new creations that is going to accomplish this. And Jesus set the tone and the model for it, of course, on the night of that Last Supper when John's Gospel tells about him with the towel and the basin in his hand, washing the feet, doing the unpleasant servant duty that for some reason no slave did when they came in the room and none of the least of the disciples even was ready to do for a master whom they considered to be exalted. Philippians 2, you remember, gives us that example of the lowliness of Christ. 2, 5 through 11 in Philippians says, Jesus won the name that is above every name. You want position? You want title? He got it. How did he get it? Not by grasping it. Not by campaigning for it through every state in the union. But by humbling himself and becoming obedient unto death. And it was because of that that the Father exalted him to the highest place of all. His exaltation came from his lowliness. It did not come from self-promotion. And it takes a supernatural and a revolutionary work of the Spirit of God in us to go against our pride and let us abase ourselves before other people. I believe a Christian leader is one whose agenda is open and transparent. 
who guides people not by manipulation but by motivation. Fathers and mothers, office managers, principals, committee chairmen, elders, pastors, political community leaders, we must ask ourselves questions like these. One, whose well-being does my decision really serve here? Mine or the majority of those whom I'm responsible to lead? Another question, has my desire to be noticed or applauded or obeyed by other people been taken to the cross recently so that self has been abased? Another question, am I listening to God and his word and the example of Jesus Christ? And am I listening also to those people I am responsible to lead? Now, that doesn't necessarily mean a 51% vote of the people has the answer of where they should be led. But they need to be listened to. Christ did not ask us merely to imitate him the best way we knew how in that towel and basin stance of his. He promised to radically indwell a prayerful Christian and to put his spirit in us to empower that leadership style from within because it doesn't come from within us naturally. He gives the enabling grace to be able to see the way forward, to see where you want to motivate another person or a whole congregation of people or a whole community of people or a nation to go. He gives the grace to see the way forward, at least a step at a time. But let me tell you, that which is going to allow you to influence people in that direction is not the title that you wear or the position you've been exalted to, or the seniority of your service. It is spirit-given, transforming character likeness to Jesus Christ, and that alone, which will allow us to motivate and lead even one other person in our own family. Now, secondly, I ask you to see from Matthew 20 this statement. It's a statement that probably would make would-be leaders run in the opposite direction because I tell you this, a cross awaits every Christ-like leader. A cross awaits you. Matthew 20, 26 to 28 reports these words of Jesus, whoever among you desires to be great must become your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. When we nominate officers in the church, it is, of course, a normal and right thing that people will ask the person calling, well, well, what's involved? Uh, And what they normally mean by that, I think, is how many nights of a month am I going to have to be at meetings or, or what duties am I going to have to carry out so that I don't go into this thing blind. I wonder if we shouldn't tell them, here's what's involved. You have to die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, if any man would come after Christ, he needs to know that the call of discipleship 
is a call to come and die. Crucifixion of self is required of leaders in many ways, not by nails through your hands or wrists or feet, but nails driven into the vain glory of self that loves to be prominent. Nails into the yearning to be obeyed. Nails driven into the desire that you would have some fame, however minor the circle in which that is recognized. Those things actually have to be killed off. And it's painful when they die. Matthew 20, 17 to 19 has Jesus making this clear prophecy that he is going up to the cross. Now, if you've been observant in Matthew as we've studied and you've been with us, this is the third or fourth of these paragraphs where he made a very explicit message, I'm going up to the cross, and if you just look ahead in your scripture, what it begins, the 21st chapter of Matthew, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. They're really on the way, and they're just about there, and the cross, he knows, is immediately ahead. It's weighing him down. The imperative of death is upon him, and yet at the moment, and what we read in this text, and what immediately comes after that announcement, I'm going to the cross, tells you nobody really understood what he was talking about. Certainly not the mother of James and John, and James and John themselves, who remarkably, as rather strong apostles later on, come with their mother taking the lead. I can see these two adult men kind of tagging along behind their mother. It's a remarkable scene. And she comes to Jesus, probably having been around, certainly James and John were around, when he just a bit earlier than this, in verse 16 of chapter 20, said, many who are last are going to be first, and many who are first have to be made last. And she says, please, Master, I can begin to see what you're talking about, this heavenly kingdom, and I believe you're going to come into it, and I want my two fine sons to be at your right hand and your left. Will you make that promise to me? It's just extraordinary. It just is amazing that that is said in this context in light of the things Jesus has been saying. But he didn't explode with rage. He didn't say, you stupid people, you haven't been paying attention. He was very gentle. He turned to the two disciples, James and John, who were there with their mother, and he asked a question. Can you suffer enough to deserve that? And showing that they didn't understand at all, they said, of course we can. You see, I believe no one ever counts on suffering being a normal part of leadership. You don't count on suffering being a part of a husband leading a wife, that ego being crucified to bend to her. You don't count on suffering being a part of, of being an elder. You tend to think, oh, I'm an elder. I'll, I'll march in at communion and everybody will respect me. That's what I expect. And we tend to think if we've been given any office or place of leadership, whether it has a formal title or not, that leadership means being respected. So if leadership begins to mean being criticized, misunderstood, abused, or even killed, we say, what's wrong here? 
This is abnormal. I think Jesus was saying here, if you're going to bear any office of leadership that is like the office that I bear, you better be ready to suffer. And it is in the hot crucible that the part and parcel of the office of leadership begins to emerge. I met with a godly, effective pastor recently who's presently besieged in a congregational crisis that I don't think he really made for himself at all. But he's in the hot seat along with his other leaders, and stress is taking a big toll on it. He sent me this quote after we met, which I really appreciated because it showed me that the Lord is working and he's holding on. It's a quote from a man of church history named William Law. Here's what William Law said to leaders or anyone else for that matter who is suffering. He said, receive every inward and outward trouble, disappointment, pain, uneasiness, temptation. Receive it with both hands. Take a hold of it, he said as a true opportunity and blessed occasion of dying to self and thereby entering into fuller fellowship with your suffering Savior. What do we think when suffering comes into a role that we've been called to carry out? I must be doing something wrong. Let me run in the opposite direction and get away from it. William Law said, take a hold of it with both hands. And believe it's an occasion of dying to self and entering into fuller fellowship with a suffering Savior. Before her December 27th assassination, Mrs. Benazir Bhutto of Pakistan, I think seemed from interviews she gave and other indications, she seemed to understand the necessity that her role in the crisis of her particular nation at this time in history to try to bring democracy back and that she represented its best hope, she knew that her leadership was going to require a severe cross of some kind. And I think she knew that her own life might be the price that would have to be paid, and you know it was. How many leaders know that the price of really being used by God to influence others, whether it's one other person, is actually death to yourself? That's the price. Thirty years ago, a man who modeled great Christ-like ministry to me, Dr. Richard Halverson, the late Dr. Halverson, was pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church in Bethesda, Maryland, and he was elected to become chaplain of the United States Senate, an office which he carried into retirement years. He went from being pastor of a rather large, prominent church, preaching every week, very active, in demand all over the place. Pastor, what do you think? Do this. Go to meetings. And he told about how bewildered he was as he began the new assignment of being the Senate chaplain. That was his full-time job. I mean, you might think, well, just to go pray once a day? Is that a job? Well, he was actually also supposed to be available as a spiritual influence and leader on the senators. But here's what he said that caused him bewilderment. He said, quote, I was no longer in charge of anything. In fact, I felt like a non-person, a mascot to this powerful 
body, this powerful body of leaders in the world. And for weeks and weeks, I wondered, what am I doing here? And then as he prayed about it, the Lord showed him some things, and he came to see this. Quote again, Halverson said, I must be a humble garment which Jesus Christ can wear every day to do what he wants to do in the United States Senate. I don't need power. My weakness is actually my asset. If Christ is in me and in any way seen through me, what more do I need? Richard Halverson knew what it meant for leadership to go to the cross. And as I close today, my last point looks back to Matthew 19.28. I didn't read that. It's from last week. Where the Lord told his disciples at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That certainly means, as a concluding point, that faithful leadership for Christ today means ruling with him tomorrow. Now, whatever that exact role of the first apostles will be in the judgment day, their reward is going to come from simple fidelity to Christ, going to death for him and being the garment that he could wear to change the world. What a comfort to Christian leaders to hear that it's not perfection that's required, just faithfulness. And it's not the strokes of the people who are being led upon the leader that count or that really matter at all. And so why should we begin tailoring leadership decisions to please that which the crowd wants, positioning ourselves for their prizes and affirmation when that doesn't last and that doesn't mean anything in the end? Leaders who try to write their own legacy. I'm often interested in in the the closing of a, a presidential term when the, all the pundits and the editorials will say, well, the president is considering his legacy. In other words, he's trying to do this and do that so that he'll be remembered in a certain way. You know, it's just about the most futile thing in the world for somebody to shape their own legacy. You can't do it. Someone else is going to write your legacy. The reward a leader can gain in this world and right now doesn't matter for the long term. There are only tributes and trinkets that the world can hand out to a leader. God gives the final strokes when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. We wouldn't perhaps admire Mother Teresa of Calcutta for her theology, but she was admirable in many ways for Christ-likeness. She was given the Nobel Prize, you might recall, a number of years ago. And after she went through receiving the Nobel Prize, she returned to India in her place of service, and she quietly said, I'm not going to go and accept any more of those kinds of prizes, because she found that the price of being praised that highly was too distracting from the service that God had called her to do. Jesus Christ, who went to a horrible cross for us, called upon every subordinate leader in his kingdom, every husband, 
every mom and dad, every Sunday school teacher, every community leader, every citizen, every worker who influences other people in any way, to act in his name and in his model by forsaking careerism, personal conceit, the competition that yearns for applause, and exchanging that for lowly service. And he said there will be a reward, but it's paid out in eternal currency, not earthly praise. The very last words of David recorded in Scripture are in 2 Samuel chapter 23. David, who was the great general, a great king, the ancestor, physically speaking, of Jesus Christ, had these last words, a man who definitely knew what leadership that listened to God was about. And here's exactly what David said. He that rules over men in righteousness must be just. When one rules in the fear of God, He is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning. He's like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. May that be said of God's people in whatever station of influence he has put you, in your family, your business, your school, your church, you can be a garment that Jesus Christ can wear in any of those places. It requires going to the cross. Father, as we do lead, and as the majority of people in this room have some kind of leadership influence, I pray, O oh God, that you keep calling us and refining us that you might be the one who gets glory and that you might be the one who accomplishes your work even amazingly through us. For Jesus' sake, amen.